Chapter Thirty Three of Fighting the Flames. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel. Fighting the Flames by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Thirty Three. The Last. For many months, Frank Wilders lay upon his bed, unable to move and scarcely able to speak. His left leg and arm had been broken, his face and hands were burned and cut, and his once stalwart form was reduced to a mere wreck. During that long and weary time of suffering he had two nurses who never left him, who relieved each other day and night, smoothed his pillow, and read to him words of comfort from God's blessed book. These were his own mother and Emma Ward. For many weeks his life seemed to waver in the balance, but at last he began to mend. His frame, however, had been so shattered that the doctors held out little hope of his ever being anything better than a helpless cripple, so one day he said to Emma, "'I have been thinking, Emma, of our engagement.' He paused and spoke sadly, as if with great difficulty. "'And I have made up my mind,' he continued, "'to release you.' "'Frank!' exclaimed Emma. "'Yes, dear, no one can possibly understand what it costs me to say this, "'but it would be the worst kind of selfishness were I to ask you to marry a poor wretched cripple like me.' "'But what if I refuse to be released, Frank?' said Emma, with a smile. "'You may indeed be a cripple, but you shall not be a wretched one if it is in my power to make you happy. "'And as to your being poor, what of that? "'I knew you were not rich when I accepted you.' and you know I have a very, very small fortune of my own, which will at least enable us to exist until you are able to work again. Frank looked at her in surprise, for he had not used the word poor with reference to money. "'Has mother told you, then, not anything about my circumstances of late?' he asked. "'No, nothing. What could she tell me that I do not already know?' said Emma. Frank made no reply for a few moments. Then he said with a sad yet gratified smile, "'So you refuse to be released?' "'Yes, Frank, unless you insist on it,' replied Emma. Again the invalid relapsed into silence and shut his eyes. Gradually he fell into a quiet slumber, from which, about two hours later, he awoke with a start, under the impression that he had omitted to say something. Looking up, he found that his mother had taken Emma's place. He at once asked why she had not told Emma about the change in his fortunes. "'Because I thought it best,' said Mrs. Wilders, "'to leave you to tell her yourself, Frank.' "'Well, mother, I depute you to tell her now, and pray do it without delay. I offered to give her up a short time ago, but she refused to listen to me.' "'I'm glad to hear it,' replied the widow with a smile. "'I always thought her a good, sensible girl.' Hmm, so did I, said Frank, and something more. Once again he became silent, and, as an inevitable consequence, fell fast asleep. In which satisfactory state we will leave him while we run briefly over the events of his subsequent history. In direct opposition to the opinion of all his doctors, Frank not only recovered the use of all his limbs, but became as well and strong as ever and the great fire in Tooley Street left no worse marks upon him than a few honourable scars. His recovery, however, was tedious. The state of his health, coupled with the state of his fortune, rendered it advisable that he should seek the benefit of country air, 
so he resigned his situation in the london fire brigade resigned it we may add with deep regret for some of his happiest days had been spent in connection with that gallant corps rambling and fishing among the glorious mountains of wales with his brother willie he speedily regained health and strength while wandering with delight through one of the most picturesque scenes of that wild and beautiful region he came suddenly one day on a large white umbrella under which sat a romantic-looking man something between an italian bandit and an english sportsman who was deeply engrossed with a sheet of paper on which he was depicting one of the grandest views in the splendid pass of lanbury at this man willie rushed with a shout of surprise and found that he answered at once to the name of fred auberly fred was thrown into such a state of delight at the sight of his old friends that he capsized the white umbrella packed up his paints and accompanied them to their inn here on being questioned he related how that while in rome he had been seized with a fever which laid him prostrate for many weeks that on his recovery he wrote to lou and his father but received no reply from either of them that he afterwards spent some months in switzerland making more than enough money with his brush to keep the pot boiling and that finally he returned home to find that dear lou was dead and that the great tooley street fire had swept away his father's premises and ruined him as this blow had however been the means of softening his father and effecting a reconciliation between them he was rather glad than otherwise he said that the fire had taken place fred did not say although he might have said it with truth that stiff and stately mr auberly had reduced almost to beggary and that he was now dependent for a livelihood on the very palette and brushes which once he had so ruthlessly condemned to the flames after this trip to wales frank returned home and told his mother abruptly that he meant to marry emma ward without delay to which mrs wilders replied that she thought he was quite right as emma appeared to be of the same mind the marriage took place in due course that is to say miss tippet and emma managed to put it off as long as possible and create as much delay as they could when they had not the shadow of an excuse for further delay not so much as a forgotten band or an omitted hook of the voluminous trousseau the great event was allowed to go on or to come off many and varied were the faces that appeared at the church on that auspicious occasion mr auberly was there to give away the bride and wonderfully cheerful he looked too considering that he gave her to the man whom he once thought so very unworthy of her Willie was groomsman, of course, and among the bridesmaids there was a little graceful, dark-eyed, and dark-haired creature, whom he regarded as an angel or a fairy, or something of that sort, and whom everybody else, except Frank and Mrs. Wilders, thought the most beautiful girl in the church. In the front gallery, just above this dark-eyed girl, sat an elderly man who gazed at her with an expression of intense affection. His countenance was careworn and had a somewhat dissipated look upon it yet there was a healthy glow on it too as if the dissipation were a thing of the distant past the dark-eyed girl once or twice stole a glance at the elderly man and smiled on him with a look of affection quite as fervent as his own there was a rather stylish youth at this man's elbow whose muscles were so highly developed that they appeared about to burst his superfine black coat he was observed to nod familiarly to the dark-eyed girl more than once and appeared to be in a state of considerable excitement ready, as it were, to throw a somersault over the gallery on the slightest provocation. Of course Mrs. Tippet was there, in such a love of a bonnet, looking the picture of happiness. 
So was Mr. Tippet, beaming all over with joy. So was Miss Demas, scowling hatred and defiance at the men. So was David Boone, whose circumstances had evidently improved, if one might judge from the self-satisfied expression on his face and the splendor of his attire. John Barrett was also there, and close beside him stood Ned Hooper, who appeared to shrink modestly from observation, owing, perhaps, to his coat being a little threadbare. But Ned had no occasion to be ashamed of himself, for his face and appearance showed clearly that he had indeed been enabled to resist temptation, and that he had risen to a higher position in the social scale than a vendor of ginger-beer. In the background might have been seen Hopkins, tall and dignified as ever, with Matty Marion at his side. It was rumoured below stairs that these two were engaged, but as the engagement has not yet advanced to anything more satisfactory, we hold that to be a private matter with which we have no right to meddle. Close to these stood a group of stalwart men in blue coats and leathern belts, and with sailor-like caps in their hands. These men appeared to take a lively interest in what was going forward, and evidently found it difficult to restrain a cheer when Frank took Emma's hand. Once or twice during the service one or two other men of similar appearance looked into the church as if in haste, nodded to their comrades, and went out again, while one of them appeared in the organ loft with a helmet hanging on his arm, and his visage begrimmed with charcoal, as if he were returning from a recent fire. This man, feeling, no doubt, that he was not very presentable, evidently wished to see without being seen. He was very tall and stout, and was overheard to observe, in very Irish tones, that it was a pretty sight entirely. When the carriage afterwards started from the door, this man, who bore a strong resemblance to Joe Corney, sprang forward and called for three cheers, which call was responded to hardly by all, especially by the blue-coated and belted fellows with sailor-like caps, who cheered their old comrade and his blooming bride with those deep and thrilling tones which can be produced in perfection only by the lungs and throats of true blue British tars. Now it must not be supposed that this was the end of Frank's career. In truth, it was only the beginning of it, for Frank Wilders was one of those men who know how to make good use of money. His first proceeding after the honeymoon was to take a small farm in the suburbs of London. He had a tendency for farming, and he resolved at least to play it at it if he could make nothing by it. There was a small cottage on the farm, not far from the dwelling-house. This was rented by Willie, and into it he afterwards introduced Ziza Catley as Mrs. William Wilders. The widow inhabited another small cottage not a hundred yards distant from it, but she saw little of her own home except at night, being constrained to spend most of her days with one or other of her boys. As the farm was near a railway station, Willie went to town every morning to business, Saturdays and Sundays excepted, and returned every evening. His business prospered, and so did Mr. Tibbets. That eccentric old gentleman had, like Mr. Auberly, been ruined by the great fire, but he did not care, so he said, because the other business kept him going. He was not aware that Willie's engineering powers turned in all the money of that other business, and Willie took care never to enlighten him, but helped him as of old in planning, inventing, and discovering to the end of his days. There was one grand feature which Frank introduced into his suburban establishment, which we must not omit to mention. This was the new patent steam fire engine. He got it not only for the protection of his own farm, but, being a philanthropic man, 
for the benefit of the surrounding district, and he trained the men of his farm and made them expert firemen. Willie was placed in command of this engine so that the great wish of his early years was realized. There was not a fire within ten miles round them, at which Willie's engine was not present, and the brothers continued for many years to fight the flames together in that neighborhood. As for stout George Dale and sturdy Baxmore and facetious Joe Corney, with his comrades Moxie Williams and Mason and Sam Forrest, those heroes continued to go on the even tenor of their way, fighting more battles with the flames in six months than were fought with our human enemies by all our redcoats and blue jackets in as many years, and without making any fuss about it, too, although danger was the element in which they lived, and wounds or death might have met them any day of the year. For we all know, to the contrary, they may be carrying on the war while we pen this chronicle, and unless more vigorous measures are adopted for preventing fire than have been taken in the past, there can be no question that these stout-hearted men will in time to come have more occasion than ever for fighting the flames. The End End of chapter 33 End of Fighting the Flames, Tale of the London Fire Brigade, by R. M. Ballantyne